Hi, welcome to Scattered. We're a group of friends from the same church who are serving God in different countries and we're meeting online to chat through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter. We'd love you to join us. Hello everybody and welcome to Scattered. Today we are looking at 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 8 to 15. And so far in the letter we've had Paul writing to Timothy uh, and his true child in the faith and urging him to stay in Ephesus at his church to uh, to fight against the false teachers. He talks about how the law is good as long as it's used lawfully. He talks about his testimony and why Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And uh, and then he talks about this waging the good warfare, holding the faith in a good conscience. Then he talks at the beginning of chapter two about prayers and how there is one God. Uh, and he talks at the beginning of chapter two about prayers, praying for our leaders and there being one mediator between us and God. So now we come to da, 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 quite a controversial passage. Could somebody please give me a, a, a summary of this tricky section? Yeah, Paul's moved on, hasn't he, into kind of instructions for the church, uh, the kind of worship service, I guess. So in this section, he directs his instructions, especially towards men's kind of roles and women's roles within that setting. Um, So he, we're going to go through this, but he says that men should be doing certain things and women should be doing certain things and not doing certain things um and yeah so it's a tricky read he gives a kind of a uh, bit of principle towards the end of the passage as to why he's saying what he's saying great thank you so in verses 8 to 10 what is it that he has he wants men and women to do and why for each of those divisions so um paul, paul here is saying that um that in every place men should pray lifting holy hands and um i read that this lifting up the holy hands was a posture of prayer and also it was a sign that they were doing this in a um a gathered congregation so it's a action within a church and then this is followed by the the first word in verse nine is likewise. So women are also to pray in this gathered meeting, but there's different distinctions or issues that are for men and are more prevalent here for women. And so the issue in verse eight for men is anger or quarreling. And then the issue for women in verse nine is their adornment um, is for modesty and self-control and not a focus on their braided hair or gold or outward appearance. And I guess the link between both those things is when, when men argue rather than pray and get angry or when women concentrate on their appearance rather than on their prayers, it's divisive and brings discord to the um, gathered group doesn't it so I think Paul's trying to say guys let's focus on why we're meeting together let's focus on the Lord and not either on um, our internal frustrations with other people or on our um, appearance and what we wear 
Great. So then we get to this uh, this next section, verses 11 to 15. We'll take it as one chunk because I think um, the second half explains the first half, really. Can you start unpacking these verses? Um, you know, we know what most people think of when they hear the word submission. Uh, it's not necessarily pos- a positive thing. So what, um, yeah, just start unpacking these these verses for me. Yeah, so in verse 10, I found it interesting, um, oh no, verse 11, where uh, it says, let a woman learn quietly. Like the first part of it is let a woman learn. And I think that was quite controversial for the time. Um, not a lot of groups would let women learn. And here Paul is saying, let them learn, which is a really positive view. Um, and then the word quietly also actually appears in 1 Timothy 2 verse 2 and there it's translated as peaceable and so it can be it's more likely in the commentators that I read that that reflects their heart attitude that rather than wanting to cause conflict they're wanting to um, strive for peace without contention i kind of immediately trip up on that when i read this passage um like i think for especially some more hardline complementarian people and by that term complementarian i mean they see men and women's roles as different in church so men and women as equal but different so you know men being the ones who have uh the ultimate authority within the church and they do the the preaching on a sunday morning and stuff like that um and the women kind of submit to that and in that submission they have roles like teaching the children and other women but just not those kind of big lead elder roles or elder roles um and i guess yeah it's it's hard to hear isn't it I think some translations say silence like women should um be silent in church and that really like definitely especially in our day and age now just makes me I kind of just wish it wasn't there um because it, it feels hard doesn't it to read as a woman that somehow because of our gender we don't get to be the ones you know listening to God's word and then teaching others in the context of church I don't know how you guys feel about it yeah it's hard to read isn't it I totally agree but I think for me I need to go back a little bit and just think about the whole complementary thing in in the state of we are God's created us differently and it's obvious isn't it that men and women are different creations but almost allowing that to be something to celebrate rather than something to try and flatten the curve of and I just think I I, there's loads of problems isn't there that we can see in our culture when that curve is flattened and we try and say that men and women are just the same and so actually this week I've been doing a bit of just spending a bit of time trying to let my heart celebrate the fact that God in his wisdom created us differently and that that's actually a really good thing that we can celebrate and that there's really good things to celebrate within that rather than just looking at the prohibitions that are obviously prominent in the passages like this well as um i examined um more about different egalitarian 
uh, interpretations of this passage. I found it was quite, it actually made a lot of sense when you look at some of the words that are translated. Um, so the word for, if we look at the Genesis passage here, the word for formed first is, is plasso in Greek. I don't know if that's pronounced right, but um, it was not a word for order of formation, but actually an order of education. And so as Adam was formed first, he was educated first from by God directly. And actually he failed to intervene at that right moment. And Eve was deceived here because she was lesser formed. So she was lesser, less more, um, she was less educated than Adam because when she spoke to the serpent, uh, the words that she spoke about that God said were a little bit incorrect. And so, yeah, so there's, there's this argument on, uh, from an egalitarian perspective that actually this passage is looking about why women shouldn't teach is because actually they haven't been taught properly. And that actually when they haven't been taught properly, they're easily deceived. And so one interpretation is that actually what we need is women to be educated properly. And then when they are educated properly, then they can. Yeah, I read that as well, because I, in preparation for Scattered and various other things that have gone on at St. Clement's this week, went back to first principles, kind of took a blank slate and uh, went and um, looked at all the arguments or the discussion points uh, for both sides, really. I read that argument. Um, I think it's tricky, isn't it? Because actually, if you look at um, what he's saying here, it's, yeah, Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived. I think the argument for it being an upending of natural creation order is quite strong. So the instruction to not eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge and that kind of thing was given to Adam prior to the creation of Eve. Um, and that actually in this moment, Eve stepped up and took the leadership role in, in talking to the serpent. Um, Adam did not intervene. He allowed the woman to, to step up and do that. And so, and the, and the result was the fall. And the point of all of that really is that Adam stepped back. So far, rather than it being an issue with the fact that women stepped forward, the issue was Adam stepped back and abdicated responsibility. So rather than women be silent, it's more a case of man should have stood up. But then Adam willfully disobeyed. And so that gives him, uh, makes him a better candidate for leadership in his willful disobedience as opposed to Eve's lesser education being deceived. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't think it's a, um, a case of who is better equipped and who is a better person. I think the creation order was put into place prior to the fall. 
um, and that it was good and it was and God saw that everything was very good and here is an upending. I don't think it's a case of who's a better um, I think it's a it's a pattern that's been set by God from the beginning that was upended. I spent a long time this week talking about this with my husband and we have had a lot of back and forth and something that's really uh, tripped us up this week uh, has been why does the creation order mean that man is in authority and I guess yeah what Juliet's saying makes a lot of sense um, because especially thinking, I think we need to talk about this context, this passage in the context that it was written. And I know that some people um, have problems with that because if you, you know, look too heavily into the context, then, you know, what about people that don't know the context and they read it? But I think it's really important that this church um, in Ephesus that Timothy was leading was, was planted and being grown in the context of a cult of Artemis worship or Diana's worship. And that was a that was a context of very strong women, um, kind of almost worship of fertility and women and everything. And so, you know, people were coming to faith and coming into these churches with that kind of mindset. Um, and I think some people, so egalitarians would say that Paul is is trying to say to women, like rein it in, like you you are not better and stronger than men like just because you know you have a womb or whatever like he's he's saying um you know there is a right order to do things in church but um a really challenging thing i read which lots of egalitarians say is that actually verses um 11 and 12 are especially in the singular in the greek and he's actually addressing one single woman. So before verses 11 and 12, um, he's talking about women, plural. And then in verses 11 and 12, he starts talking in the singular. And some people are of the view that Timothy would have known who he's talking about. Paul's done this before in other books. He's spoken about someone, but not actually named them. But, you know, people would have known who that is. So some people say that this, these two verses are actually talking to a particular woman, like she should not be uh, in authority in this church. So, yeah, I just wondered if you guys, because that's another thing that's really making me, you know, I, I, am, I think I'd still call myself a complementarian at this point, but I have been really shaken by my deep research into this because I feel like the more I read, the more I'm just not sure anymore. I guess I sorry Mary I've not done as much work as Helen on on this passage so but my answer to that sort of wider question would be I just think there's a lot of passages throughout the Bible that would talk so I hear what you say about that particular church that this was written to but I think the Bible talks about three spheres of life doesn't it sort of the home the church and then the state and I think um, passages like Ephesians 5 where they're talking about the home are really clear about the fact that within a, a home situation the husband is the leader and so I think it just makes sense to me it just follows that that would also be true in the church because 
it would be bizarre, wouldn't it, for me to be submitting to my husband at home and allowing him to lead it at home, but then in the church that's not relevant. And so it, I think I'm not necessarily 100% convinced from this passage, but I think when you look at Scripture as a whole and the whole sweep of the way that um, men and women's roles are played out throughout Scripture, I think God is really clear that our roles are complementary but different. From an egalitarian perspective, there's also the opposing view that actually through Old Testament and New Testament, there have been very strong female leaders. Um, so in the Old Testament, especially people like Deborah and Huldah. Um, and then in the New Testament, there's quite a few people that are named to prophesy in, well, there's the women who prophesies in First uh, Corinthians, then there's Lydia and who has a church meeting in her home. Um, and then other, other, I can't remember, it's Cephas or several other women are named in different places, either having an evangelical role or also uh, prophesying. Yeah, and I th I think that's really key. I think so often when we look at these passages, like 1 Timothy chapter 2, we talk about what women are not allowed to do rather than what women are free to do. And I think the Bible is very clear that women can prophesy and pray and be an, an evangelist and do everything else. Um, I would say that this that passages like this one in 1 Timothy 2 say that women can't be elders or preach, but within the church life that they could do absolutely everything else um, and I think the Bible is really clear on that um, with in terms of the Old Testament characters yeah I agree there are really strong women for example at the beginning of Exodus it is women who drive everything it is the midwives it is Moses's sister it's Moses's mum it's Pharaoh's daughter the whole thing there is the whole narrative is driven by women um, I think uh, what was the thing? I think in terms of the authority um, thing from Genesis, I do think that um, I do think there are some indications about authority of men over the the family. I think Adam was formed outside of Eden and put in. Uh, he was um, given the command about what he could and could not do in the garden. Um, although they're not um, sort of arbitrary rules, but um, they the things that they are told that they should be doing reflect their male and femaleness, their 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 image bearers, the different images that they hold being men and women. Um, and so I do think there are indications in Genesis about male authority within the family and that that is then carried throughout the rest of scripture into the church but I would say beyond that the bible does not speak to it can I just say so some complementarians would hold an extreme view where women need to be in submission in all areas of life outside of the church in public sphere as well as within the church then there's a spectrum so women are full stop not allowed to teach um, then they can only teach women and children, they can teach in Bible study groups, they can occasionally preach, 
um, they can preach but not be the pastor and then they can pastor. So even soft complementarians, some soft complementarians would allow women to be pastors but wouldn't allow them to be like the lead pastor. And um, that's really helpful, Julia. And can we just get a bit of a tighter definition of submission? Because I think when we hear the word submission, we just think slavery, beaten down on people, they have to always do as you say. What does what does submission actually mean within the biblical context? I think the most helpful place to go is Ephesians 5 and the picture of Jesus and the church and um, the fact that Jesus was is both at the same time in submission to his father and yet he submits. So he submits to his father and yet we submit to him. And so I find Jesus a really helpful place to go to when I'm thinking about submission in that he it's something that we choose. And so I choose to submit to my husband um, I joyfully give that away. Um, and so there's a freedom in that rather than a servitude. And I think the actual, the definition of submission is an act of yielding control to a more powerful or authoritative entity. And so, yeah, like, like in that case, Jesus yielded to the father's will and as a church or even as believers we are to yield to christ yielding to a pastor is not just alone for the women to bear it's for all the members of the church family to submit to the pastor and so it's it gives it also gives the pastor a very high level of responsibility and so in the same way we're yielding to the pastor it it means that the pastor has very high responsibility to care for everyone of the church family yeah and in a similar way a husband as he mirrors christ has such a high responsibility doesn't he to love his wife in a sacrificial way and so i think that's that why the picture of christ is so helpful isn't it because jesus laid down his life for the church and for his people and that's the call of leadership isn't it it's that sort of sacrificial leadership that we're then asked to submit to yeah but i think in a fallen world we need to appreciate that a lot of our husbands are not like christ and so there's a different level of submission that we submit to christ with everything whereas sometimes we'll choose not to submit to our husbands if they're telling us to some to do something not in accordance with god's will or even a pastor you know sometimes we will choose to leave a church if we disagree that the pastor is actually not following what god is saying yeah i'm really keen to make it clear i've said this every time i've talked about this in the last week that complementarianism does not condone abuse um that it is not a reason for women to be doormats and to be ignored um, or abused in any way, shape or form. And if it is occurring, it needs to be called out because it is not uh, what God designed for complementarity. And it, I think in the past it has been used as an excuse um, and we need to call that out. And I think also we need to acknowledge that 
whether you are a complementarian or an egalitarian, you need to be humble <laughs> to other believers and brothers and sisters in Christ, because whatever position you hold, it is a secondary issue. And I think when we look in the mirror at all the different things that we've even read about, I think we can all feel convicted that we don't love Christ in a perfect way, that we don't love others. And we don't, we probably pray thinking about what other people think about us more than we think about what we're praying to, that we're, who we're praying to. And so I think, yeah, I think we need that humble attitude and also um, just a recognition that this is a secondary issue. It's not a gospel significant issue. Both sides, people that hold both sides of the the perspective are still believers and brothers and sisters yes. in Christ. And so it's, yeah. I was just going to say, I even though I'm struggling with this and I have more to say on various bits of the passage and you could go really deep dive into this and we could argue all day. Um, I actually think it's worth saying that even if I ended up egalitarian at some point, um, I personally am really happy, for example, to stay at St. Clement's and be under the leadership of Jumpy, who's a complementarian. Like, I don't think it always needs to be a big source of contention. Like, I actually disagree with, um, like, I, I don't want to go to war about it, but I, my husband and I, we slightly disagree on baptism. But at the end of the day, I was just like, this doesn't need to be a huge thing that we argue about and make a really big deal bigger than it needs to be um and I, I feel the same and I did actually submit to him in that but I feel the same with this issue like I feel like there are bigger things at stake in the church uh in this day and age and yes it's really important to take scripture really seriously and to really think about what we think but I, I, it makes me sad when it's an issue that then causes bitterness and strife within a church because, um, yeah, because I feel like we are united on a lot more than what we need to be disunited about. Um, and if, you know, if it's, if you feel called as a woman to be a preacher, because I, I guess that's another thing. I strongly dislike preaching and I don't feel called to be a pastor. So it's not been a huge wrestle for me in that sense. Um, I guess if it is for somebody who's listening, then yeah, go really deep dive into this and wrestle it out with your church leader and stuff. But yeah, for me, I'm like, there are just such big, bigger things. Um, I personally think, and can we, yeah, like even in this passage um, with the weight we've given to this little bit, I mean, obviously it's good to talk, talk about it, but there's other things, aren't there? Yeah. And, and actually the, <clears throat> excuse me, the issue for Paul in this letter is is people leading is the leaders leading people away from the true gospel and so you know you can be in a church and disagree with the leadership on what we would call secondary or tertiary issues um but if you make everything that uh, you discuss or talk about or talk about with others if you make everything about that thing rather than unity and oneness in Christ and what he's done for us that that's where it becomes a problem I think and mm. I think that's partly what Paul is saying I mean these false teachers are very uh, heretical but I think the theme applies across the board 
I think, um, you know, I am a complementarian. I am probably a more convinced now than I was prior to the last couple of weeks. But I sat under female church leadership for four years in Uganda. Um, and, you know, it was it was fine. It was not what I would have chosen, but it didn't mean that I were actively worked against the minister. Like I encouraged her and I submitted to her as my church leader. So I don't think it has to be so divisive. Um, yeah. I think it only also becomes a big issue when, um, when a, when a pastor or, you know, men in leadership, like use it in a way that's authoritarian and, you know, is harmful towards other people, especially women. Like I know there are examples of that recently um, in the in the church here and in the states of of pastors who've taken this teaching so far that actually, yeah, women in abusive situations have ended up, you know, having to push their abuse under the carpet, or other leaders in the church have felt squashed, or you know, people have felt like their gifts are not being appreciated and used. Like there are lots of situations where it really does affect people and it really needs grappling with but yeah I feel like for me to yeah to stay even if I end up egalitarian and I feel like this isn't a decision that can be made just in a few in a week of studying this like I feel like this is probably going to be the next few years of my life and I'm going to you know this doesn't need to be a quick thing but then at the end of the day what's my end goal like I'm still I still my still main core is that I want to love people well and share the gospel. Like that's the big thing, isn't it? Yeah. And I think that's the thing for me when, so on the panel, one of the panel questions um, this week at St. Clement's was what happens if there's a woman who who's leading a church around here who has a really successful ministry? Like, what should we think of that? And I said, I think we should think she's a blessing because that mm. is the ultimate aim is for the gospel to come out. And that is why it's a secondary issue because the gospel comes mm-hmm. first. Yeah, and, and Jumpy talked, didn't he, about um, a bishop in the Church of England who's a woman, but that he would really happily work with because she, she's so front and central about getting Jesus out there. So whenever she's interviewed in the press, he's so excited that she's the voice of the Church of England because she talks about Jesus all the time. And so mm-hmm. I think wherever you stand on this, if somebody's heart is to talk about Jesus and to share the good news, then we rejoice in that don't we whatever their gender mm. okay I feel like I, I feel like we've spent quite a lot of time on that but I'm quite keen just to talk about the last verse because I think again it's quite confusing so uh, the last verse says yet she women woman uh, will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control so, ladies, is this saying that women who don't give birth to babies are condemned? No, I, don't, I think if you look at the broad sweep of scripture, that is definitely not what, and especially what Paul has written, that's definitely not what he's saying. I think, so what I read about this was that actually this is linked to um uh, Mary giving birth to Jesus. Um, I don't know what you guys read on it, but I think the Greek, uh, if you look at the Greek, it makes me want to go away and study Greek, you know, like all this argument about Greek words. Um, but if you 
Um, oh, I'm in John. Hang on, just let me try and find one Timothy again because I can never find it. There we go. Um, apparently, if you look at the Greek, it's um, more the phrase, so yet she will be saved, referring to a particular childbearing. So I think it's uh, probably in reference to Jesus being born of Mary. So we are saved through Jesus um, and we must continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control, which is, you know, what Jesus asks us to do um, as humans, not just women. Yeah, I read that as well, Mary, but then I think there's another interpretation that just says there's lots of things um, to celebrate that as only women can do, and this would be one of them, and that it's Paul calling women to enjoy and rejoice in their womanliness that God's given them and God's created them for. And so it's just one example of the many things that God has blessed women with. And we shouldn't um, run away from that, but we should celebrate that. Yeah, I had read that as well. The other thing worth noting is that this word saved for us, I think in our minds, we have um, a vision of justification. So like that moment when you believe and you're and you're saved, um, it's like this big cutoff point. But actually the word saved or salvation in the New Testament has a much broader um, meaning. And it actually covers the entire life of the Christian. So the thing I read said that um, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, where it talks about working out our salvation and fear and trembling, it's actually the same word that's used. And in the context of this passage where he's talking about men and women's roles, what he's saying is actually giving birth is one of the ways a woman demonstrates obedience to her God-given identity. So it's this working out salvation her general life embracing her role as a woman um that's what it's talking about rather than actual justification yeah what what i read went along with um what mary said about especially because in the same sentence there's a change from um a single noun a single noun she to a plural they and so yeah it, i was just convinced by the argument that actually she will be saved through childbearing as bringing us jesus and then if they for all of us continuing in faith and love and holiness with self-control i think that was the most convincing because yeah i just it's it's hard also when we think about how many single people there are to tell them actually you know you'll only be saved you know you'll only come to a deeper level of salvation if you have a baby i think it feeds into that um lie that actually uh having jesus is enough and is not enough and you need to have this additional stuff to make you more holy um actually jesus was single and i can leave that at that i was just gonna say kathy keller agrees with you i think we're gonna leave the passage there for the moment um if you're listening to this and you'd like to hear more the the um discussions that happened in the community groups this week uh, will be available on the st clement's website um, and you can have a listen because there are lots and lots of more, uh, lots and lots of questions I imagine people have about, um, you know, are, is Paul pro or anti-women and all this kind of thing. But we don't have time to discuss that here. 
So, um, ladies, as we wind up, any personal reflections uh, as you think about what we've just talked about? Thanks, everybody. Tricky passage, but I feel like we managed it without, you know, fighting, hitting each other in the face. Uh, so, yeah, thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, we will be back with you next week for uh, the start of chapter three. Bye. 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 Bye.